Hello and welcome to Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating the very finest video games. My name is Jonathan Dunn and I'm joined by my childhood friend in person, Chris Dow. Maybe he's born with it. Maybe it's a childhood friend. And my adulthood friend on the telephone, Minty Booth. And my adulthood friend on telephone, Minty Booth. And we are discussing our all-time top 100 video games. This week, we have our number 67s. But uh, before we do that... Here we go. (laughs) Following on from uh, last week's activities, do you fancy another spot of some track and field athletics? Of course. May I suggest that, much like little Ash Ketchum in Pokemon Fire Red last week, we pull on our running shoes and partake in some 400 metre running. Potentially even some 4 by 400 metre relay running. And then, maybe once we've finished that, we can reflect on our life choices, take up a job replacing Roy Castle as a television presenter, and then if that's not enough, in our third age of life, maybe we can forge a triumphant career as a motivational speaker. Because if we did, we would be paying homage to the glorious life's work of one Keze Uche Chukwuduru Akabusi, also known as Quiz Akabusi. There it is. (laughs) Oh boy. (laughs) The score is currently 16-14 to Chris. So, can Minty pull it back? Jill Valentine is a character... Resident Evil 2. ...from which popular video game series? We've had your answer, Chris. Yes, it's Resident Evil. The correct answer (laughs) is Resident Evil. That is the name of the video game series, not Resident Evil 2. And I'm sorry, Chris, but (laughs) the early bird did not get the point. It is now 16.15 to Minty. So we've had another question come in from the social media sphere. So Guy Lockhead has said, Hello, I love the podcast so much and look forward to starting my Mondays with it each week. Thank you for that, Guy. I appreciate it. We all do. Yeah, me too. Our three cents. I have a question. I am taking a 13-hour flight in a couple of weeks and wondered if I could ask for your recommendations of games to download to pass the time. I have an Android phone and pretty much no experience of playing mobile games. Thanks. I thought I'd kick things off with the two games that I have on my Android phone, which are... Pokemon. Is that Pokemon Rumble World? And I've also got another one called Mr. Bullet. I assume you play as Mr. Bullet because uh, he has a gun. And it's like, I don't know how to explain it, but it's like you're in a room and the room is a shape and you have to shoot a bad guy or two or three. But the geometry of the room and maybe some kind of breakable or unbreakable obstacle is uh, hampering your progress. So you need to come up with uh, fun ways to ricochet the bullet off the walls of the shaped room. It's quite fun. Interesting. And it's free, crucially. Are there in-app purchases and ads that are going to get in your way? Oh, well, they don't... But no, mm, yes. So the game I would recommend is actually the game that I've been playing this last week. I initially downloaded it on my phone but felt the text might be just a little bit too small so i've been playing it on my ipad it's a game called guild of dungeoneering and after speaking about games i was playing recently with a series of card games i've i think i've discovered that card games are my games to play on iphone or on mobile because i it just works perfectly for me it's it's doesn't require any sophisticated input you know it doesn't need like a virtual joypad which i hate and find very annoying so i've been seeking out other games to play after those three and another honorable mention is solitarica which is a roguelike solitaire game and it is fantastic absolutely fantastic and 
even though I know that Guy has asked for sort of games, sort of long games that you can sort of invest in, roguelikes for me, even though you play them in short installments, just that level of progression and try again ability of it make it a really really long game that you'll play and back to guild of dungeoneering again it's it's sort of card based it's got rpg elements you build a guild you recruit more dungeoneers to go out on quests and again it's got roguelike elements to it as well and yeah it's really really good it's really witty it's got fantastic soundtrack and really really good narration so i'd recommend playing it with the sound on it's makes for a fantastic journey and it's it's really really good fun and i, I played it on a six-hour car journey, which was not fun for the passengers in my car. <laughs> yeah, I'd recommend giving that a go. It's fantastic. For my recommendation, a game I played four or five months back that I, I remember talking to to you, Jonathan, about at the time, mm. a game called Photographs. Oh, yes, Photographs. It's a narrative puzzle game, I guess you'd say. Uh, it's kind of, it uses pixel art. It has reserved but very well-considered voiceover work as well and tells basically five separate stories that are all about human fallibility. It's all, it's all pretty miserable stuff, to be honest. Yeah, it's, it's really, really <laughs> um, I mean, bleak. what's nice about it, in, in each story, the, the mechanics of the puzzles themselves gradually kind of subvert and change to follow, you know, how the, the story itself is changing. So the internal logic of the puzzles kind of follows the, the narrative you're playing along to, which is really subtle, but really well done. And it, it's, it's a game that appears really simple, but is actually, I think, really hugely impressive when you break it down. But it is, as I kind of alluded to, devastatingly sad, so it's one to kind of steal yourself for if, if you're going to sit down and play it. The full thing is probably about three, four hours to play in, in total. None of them are like the puzzles themselves. None of them are that hard, but some certainly require you to kind of step back and reevaluate a little bit as they kind of change to accommodate the story. But I, I think it's a really unique game and one that works really well with touchscreens. So give it a go. Yeah. And if, if, you, if that's not cheery enough for you, then... I would recommend what I, the game I spoke about last week, which is This War of Mine, which is available on, on mobile as well and really works brilliantly on touchscreen and is, yeah, just a, a, a fantastic experience, if not necessarily the cheeriest. But if you are confined to a 13-hour flight and can't escape, why not use that as an immersive experience to play This <laughs> War of Mine? Just make sure that you don't... Uh, yeah, crowbar open another passenger's seat for wood to whittle into some sort of stove to heat yourself if you get cold. I, I don't need to tell you that. That's obvious. <laughs> so, yeah, so I've been playing Guild of Dungeoneering this week. What have you guys been playing? I played a chunk of the PlayStation VR game Blood and Truth Ooh. this week. It's a, a full, not sequel, but like a, a fully expanded version of what was essentially like a demo in, in the PlayStation Worlds disc that came with the PSVR. Yeah, I never played on any um, of those. So that was called The London Heist and was kind of a like an hour-long Guy Ritchie-inspired sort of gangster experience. And I mean, Blood and Truth kind of it tries to expand on that so it's like a full 10-hour experience or, or whatever. And I, I'm enjoying it, but at the same time, I think a lot of the initial whiz-bang excitement of playing that sort of game in VR is kind of dulled over the last couple of years. And and the best stuff I've played in VR has obviously been stuff like Tetris Effect or things like Thumper works really well in VR that kind of, they're very different experiences. They're not so much about saying, well, here are your virtual hands, pick up stuff and shoot a gun or whatever. So I'll, I'll play more of it, I'm sure, over the next couple of weeks and see how I get on. But it's not as exciting or as engaging as I, as I think some people who've never played VR might find it. Minty, what have you been playing? I've, I've just been clearing up a few games that I've had sitting on my Switch for a little while now. I finished Turok 2, which was great. I'm going to play through it again. Just to piss Chris off. Yeah, <laughs> I beat it normally. And I think this time I might see if I can do like a melee only run or something. 
that, that, I think that could be fun. I also completed Woodle Tree Adventures, just so that I could oh. say that I have completed it and <laughs> that my negative opinions of it are well-founded. Yeah, yeah. I, wh- what a strange game. Yeah, it's weird. The thing that, that really surprised me was I thought every game nowadays like had a good camera control, but no. this one, all you can do is either like zoom right in so that the screen is just full of your character <laughs> or zoom like all the way out to the other end of the galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did actually pick this up when you talked about it the other week. And it's it's really bad, isn't it? It is really bad. Poor. I'm sorry, but it is. <laughs> and I've also just finished the demo for Oninaki, which I believe is coming out next week. Oh yeah, yeah, that's weird too. But like in a good way, it's like it's the first sort of I guess half hour, forty five minutes of the game. You play as a guy who can. He's basically like a spirit guide, so he finds people who are who got lost on their way to the afterlife. And then helps them, I don't know, reincarnate or something. <laughs> and to help one kid go to the afterlife and not be lonely, he killed his parents. Uh, yeah, there is more than one way to skin a cat. <laughs> I know, yes. So I'm probably going to pick up the full version just so I can get an answer as to why that's acceptable in this <laughs> strange world. Yeah. Combat system's good. Liked it a lot. So, should we move on to the rankings? Yes. Yeah. Starting this week, we have my game. My game this week is going to ruffle some feathers. Much like I did with Sonic 3 and Sonic and & Knuckles, it's Minty's turn to have his nose put out no. of this one. It has only worked coincidentally that I'm doing this game when I'm not with you in person, but I do feel a little safer knowing that there is like <laughs> 200 miles between us. Oh, you coward. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's shuffled it around. I'm looking at him now. He's just dragging the spread. <laughs> <laughs> So, as I mentioned in those episodes, I missed out on the entire 16-bit era of gaming, so I never got the chance to fully appreciate Mega Drive classics such as Sonic 3 or Sonic & Knuckles or about half of Chris's entries so far. (laughs) (laughs) I never got to experience those in the era of gaming that I was meant to. And it's much the same with the SNES and this game as well. Oh, no. So I'm getting my excuses in at the top here instead of backtracking at the end of the episode. Now, this game is a game in a very renowned series. Oh, Possibly the most renowned series of all time. Oh, God, don't say it. And it was a game that loomed large over the industry for many, many years and still does now, to be honest. But by the time I came to finally play a version of it, it's Game Boy Brethren had already become firmly cemented in my heart. It's Nintendo 64 iteration had already blown my mind wide open. And I'd even enjoyed a smattering of other entries across the series as well. So um, forgive me, Minty, for it being so low down on my list. But these aren't lists of games we consider to be, air quotes, the best. These are games that we as individuals love the most. Yes, it's true. So my 67th favourite video game is <gasps> The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past. Oh, boy. Oh, it's a good game, though, isn't it? <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I think it is. If this was a list of the best games or the most important games, this would be significantly higher. But like I said, I didn't get around to playing this game for 
quite a long time after it was released. And I'm not entirely sure when it was, because I think I actually ended up playing it on an emulator on my computer. I know I did that before it was released on the Game Boy Advance, so it was probably around about 2000, 2001, so a good, you know, 10 years after it had been released. And in that time, I'd totally and utterly fallen in love with Link's Awakening, and for me, that was the pinnacle of 2D Zelda games, and exactly what all 2D Zelda games should be. So playing A Link to the Past was initially quite overwhelming because of the amount of new mechanics, weapons, items, enemies, colours, designs, weather, lighting, music, just the general you know presence of alternate dimensions. But to be honest, the thing that struck me most about just how different the game was to Link's Awakening was just how jiggly Link's hat was. Oh, it was a jiggly hat. <laughs> and I must say, I struggled to get on board with it. Oh, <laughs> I like my hats to be consistent, and, you know, that's that's really what it was about. He can't be the hero of Hyrule if he's not the hero of the laundry room. Put some starch on it. Those are my words exactly, Minty. <laughs> However, I did manage to persevere through this strange, warped, alternate version of my childhood classic game enough to appreciate the game in its own right. And, obviously, the game is, quite simply, phenomenal. And, as I said with Sonic 3... I never got the opportunity to feel the impact of everything that this game was doing when it was released. Because the Zelda series had continued to grow and develop, as, well, had gaming in general, by the time I got to play this, that initial impact of just how groundbreaking this game was, was entirely lost on me. Especially when you consider the two Zelda games that came before it. I mean, if you were a big Zelda fan from the NES days, and you loved the original, were a bit concerned about where they were going with the second one... Then, when you got your hands on A Link to the Past, you would have just imploded with excitement and <laughs> satisfaction. I mean, the level of stepping upness that they did from the original to A Link to the Past is... I mean, I can't think of many other gaming series that have done that. I mean, it's something the Zelda series has done, actually, several times, in terms of stepping it up with Ocarina of Time, and then stepping it up again with Breath of the Wild. So... Well done, Nintendo, I guess. <laughs> so I'm sure that other scents will talk more at length about this game. Well, no, actually, you know, the, the only thing that's actually comforting me about this is the fact that I know that Chris hasn't played it. So it's not <laughs> going to be in his list at all. So I'm the lesser of two evils uh, in Minty's eyes. And I'm sure that Minty's going to talk more at length about this at some point. So I'm, and I'm not going to rob him of that because it means a lot more to him than it does to me. But there were a few things that really stuck out in my mind about the game and why it was so good. And those were, I mean, strangely, all the kind of little things that created the atmosphere in the game, which was wonderful and really allowed you to sort of lose yourself in it. Like just when you, when you start the game and you've got the rain and the silence and the enigmatic text and then in the dungeons of the castle with your little lamp lighting areas as you run through the damp floor and finding little paths hidden in the trees to secret areas. And obviously having the dark world revealed to you, blowing the game wide open. Minty spoke about this before and how he loves it when a game does that. It goes, oh, you think you know the game? No, you don't. Here's an entire game. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I, lo I do love that. <laughs> You're famous for it. Although, whilst the appearance of the Dark World was incredible, and the way you could use the magic mirror to teleport between them at will was a hugely creative and head-scratching mechanic, this was one of the things that I found the most overwhelming. And it was like, just as I was about to 
get to grips finally with the world of Hyrule and its sprawling map that was, you know, five times the size of what it was in Link's Awakening, just as I was about to finally understand where I was, I then had to learn all of that again and then also try and figure out how they linked together and how where to teleport between them to access areas you couldn't. And it made my little blonde head spin in a most uncomfortable way. <laughs> Obviously, all of these things that I'm sort of picking at, at, as negatives are not negatives. They're simply things that are different to what I had initially experienced in Link's Awakening. So A Link to the Past is one of the few Zelda games I've only played through once. And it's certainly one that I'm going to play through again once SNES games are released on the Switch, which I think we're expecting to be an imminent announcement in addition to the Nintendo Online, whatever it is. I must say that the thing I'm really looking forward to is hearing Minty talk about the game and his experience with it when we get to that. As much like Chris's experience with Sonic 3, it's an experience that I, I really wish I'd had with these games. And... I can absolutely 100% appreciate the quality of these games and really value their place in the industry. And I'll always be a little bit sad that my younger self never got to experience these games at the time that they were intended. Amen. And also with you. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, The Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past, an absolutely phenomenal game that I wish meant more to me than it did. But it is still my 67th favourite video game. So, Minty... If you've finished wiping your tears and uh, finished sanding down your cricket bat to wallop my face in, would you like to share with us your 67th favourite video game? I guess I would, yes. This week's entry, a little nod to the early days of our three cents, in the sense that I never finished it. (laughs) It's sitting on my 3DS as we speak, but when I played it properly, I played it on the Game Boy Advance. When I think back on this game, I'm utterly astounded at how much atmosphere I would literally be holding in the palm of my hand. Uh, I'm a huge wuss, so I never go out of my way to play anything that's overtly scary. However, I did get condemned to one Christmas, and as soon as I heard somebody laughing in the abandoned block of flats, I promptly took it out and never gave it another thought. But this game, my 67th, has, uh, has, a, has an aura of menace, a, a real sense of dread that permeated the entire experience without making you think, uh, oh, something's going to jump out at you and rest a squeak from your unprepared breast. <sighs> Jonathan's already said a lot about Metroid Fusion and ah, yes. pretty much said everything yeah. I wanted to say. But two moments stick in my mind. The first is uh, the first time you see the SAX in your various mm. suits, as tense as hell. Oh like, yes, you're, you're you're in a crawl space, and it's just sort of wandering around in the corridor beneath you. It's got no clear agenda or urgency. You just know that it's out for you, and oh, that moment perfectly encapsulates the mood of the game. It's very unsettling, very frightening, yeah. but in a more sort of creeping way. As opposed to a... (laughs) The second moment was touched on by you as well when you talked about it. Oh, yeah. Nightmare. Oh, my God. The premise of this boss was you were sent by the ship's AI to investigate gravity spikes in Sector 5. And once you got there, you found uh, this big hulking machine infected by the X-Parasite. And... Whereas I'd literally hold my breath whenever the SAX was on screen, just in case the Game Boy Advance had a secret microphone... I spent the whole of that boss fight just being all like, oh, as its face melted away the more you killed it. Mm. Creepy game, loved it. 
Yes. Yeah, as you, I mean, you already know my thoughts on the game. And uh, yeah, it's nice to know that it did have the same sort of impact on other people. I really do think that it's an underappreciated game, certainly in the sense of the atmosphere it creates. I mean, there aren't very, very difficult to make a game that is being played on a tiny little handheld in fairly sort of bright, low resolution pixel art to actually make that scary. And it was bright and colourful. And I mean, absolute all credit to them for, for making that such an incredible experience and one that was yeah on a par with big home console releases that were you know designed to absolutely scare you yeah yeah again well done nintendo getting a lot of love today aren't they yeah they are so moving on finally we have chris's game chris can you please tell us about your 67th favorite video game art games as as art games uh pretty much ten a penny these days like it's far easier to get hold of kind of weird stuff and i mean since the rise of like indie development, as well as the fact we've now got loads and loads of avenues for digital distribution, means that it's much easier, I guess, now for developers to produce, market, and release different games that run against certainly what were once genre standards. And by art game, I, I guess I mean games that try to use the medium of games to explore like an idea or a concept or something in a way that's different from like the traditional linear experience of you're the hero, kill the things, save the world, save the girl, whatever. And although I'm not trying to suggest that like older games wouldn't occasionally subvert these tropes and things, I can't really think of that many examples prior to this game, my 67th pick, that felt this different, like really wildly different to, to games that were, were being released at the same time. And this is 2001's Eco on the PS2. Ah. So in Eco, you're a boy that's been exiled from his village due to basically just growing horns from his head. Oh no. So already within the first 30 seconds of being plonked down in the opening sort of crypt area, it's a game that has this idea about morals because he's he's been ejected from his village essentially. He's been uh, sent away to be sacrificed essentially because he's been born different. So you're not a hero. You're You're playing as like a small kid, an outcast that's been persecuted for their own differences and it's a really heavy opening when you break it down like I never really thought about this when I was say like 15 or wherever I was when I played it for the first time but think about it now it's it's quite a a weighty start <laughs> that you know kid is different sent to die very soon after the beginning you meet a young girl who's also being held captive and although she's not horned like like your character is she has this strange like ethereal glow and speaks a language that he can't understand. So in game, it's represented as kind of like a runic language when it's written on screen. Mm. So the little boy seeing maybe his own plight mirrored, you you free the girl and then opening the game to essentially become a big extended escort mission. <laughs> like, the, the entire game is, is arguably an escort mission. And the PlayStation 2 generation, so including like the GameCube and the Xbox, were consoles that a lot of developers lent on this trope, the idea that you'd have a mission where it was like, oh, protect so-and-so, make sure they don't get hurt, deliver them somewhere safely. Generally, it's really annoying. In, in almost every game, it's really annoying. But in Eco, it becomes the mechanic that's really tied to the game's whole core concept. Because neither of these characters are warriors, neither character is like particularly well equipped to actually deal with anything, and neither character has any understanding of their environment or their predicament or what's actually going on. And because they're kind of tied together purely by coincidence, it's not, like I said, like the, the traditional, it's not a deliberate rescue game. And you're not the stereotypical like male hero that's rescuing a damsel, you're just a young kid that's been driven only by like the childish purity that he wants to do the right thing. And, and the whole game has that feeling to it. It's like you never really have an idea of why anything is happening until quite later on. It's it's you're just, you're going along with this kid finding out what's happening in front of him. 
their relationship is really pure as well. So it's it's kind of in the physical movement that, that's shown in their animation. One button of the control pad is always bound to either calling for the girl when she's further away, or if you're close together, use that button to kind of grab her hand and drag her along. And there's a real nice kind of physical comedy in them having mismatched heights. So when they run, it's kind of she's jerked along behind you and, and kind of has a bit of a stumble. And also to save your game, you sit side by side on like a nice stone bench. And it's just, it's a game that's not about romanticism. It's not about that kind of uh, stereotypical connection that you might see in like films and TV and games. It's just having that moment of calm of, as like sat down next to each other. What I really like about Team Eco's later games as well, like I've not played a huge amount of Shadow of Colossus and The Last Guardian, so they, they don't appear in this list. But they're all games that revel in their own sense of scale and architecture. That in itself is like another art theme or concept that is really nice. That The stages themselves, they're not built for the sake of just saying, oh, here's a fun jump, leap about, stuff like that. Yeah, It's not like, oh, there's a little secret around the corner. They're meant to feel like big, purposeful, intimidating places, especially like considering you are this small child. When I was a kid, I remember like visiting castles and things like with my family, and they always felt massive and overbearing and really claustrophobic at the same time when you're actually sort of like going through the rooms and the tunnels of a castle. And I think Eco really successfully nails that feeling of being small and stuff being massive around you and you just finding your way through it. My only real criticism of the whole game comes from its combat. And I do wonder, because of the era this came out, like I said, the early 2000s, I think it's probably that the developers maybe didn't intend to have that much combat in it, but I'm sure the the people publishing it, like Sony would have said, you're not going to sell a game if, if there's no fighting. You're not going to sell a game that's just about walking about and climbing up platforms. So I think they were added to kind of break it up and to try and make it more action-packed. But really, the best part is just the spatial puzzles. And I wish it was just more of that with these two characters slowly working out how to get around, considering kind of how to work with one another to progress. So yeah, it's, it's unfortunate the developers kind of were, were maybe made to sort of break up these moments of quiet with you fighting just infinite spawning shadow demons that are always trying to pull the girl away. And although your character is invincible, like like we said about Warrior Land 2, so there's no real threat to you, having her yanked away into kind of like a shadowy pit causes a lot of restarts. <laughs> and it, it made me really uncomfortable as a kid. Like I didn't enjoy playing it because of that. It made it really hard to kind of want to carry on, especially when it was like a tough section. I think it's a really important game and whether or not it's kind of one that people like or one that people have played or anything, I don't think we would have had games like Brothers or Journey or Inside or any of these kind of arty experiences we've had in the last few years without Eco before it because it it started this idea that you could have a game on a mainstream console like the PlayStation 2 that was different and it took really bold steps I think at a time when the industry wasn't really equipped for this type of experience. And it holds up really well today. Like whether you play the PS2 release or it did get like an HD remaster on the PS3, it is a very good game. And I, I think it it's still worth playing if you have access to it. So that's Eco. That's a game. I like it. Lovely. Doing a little bit of research on it, it's really interesting seeing the the influences that the designers have cited. What did they say? For it. In terms of like animation and gameplay style, it's citing things like, Prince of Persia, yeah, or Lemmings, or something like that, but also Virtua Fighter. But also, you'll, you'll never guess this, a big uh, design on the cinematic cutscenes and lighting effects was Enemy Zero. That's a, a niche satin release, isn't oh, it? I know, we had it. Did you? Yeah, it was a four-disc game, and it was basically just like a interactive FMV type thing where you were fighting invisible aliens it was absolutely <laughs> terrifying and damn near impossible and we didn't keep keep hold of it 
So there we have it. Another three games. First of all, we had Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past. Then we had... Metroid Fusion. And then finally we had... Eco. If you've enjoyed this episode, or if indeed you've enjoyed any of our episodes, please do like and subscribe, leave us a review, share it with your friends, share it on social media, tell a loved one, whisper it in their ear sensually as the hour clocks late into the night. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Facebook, Our Three Cents. Feel free to ask us any questions on there, and if you'd like to hear them discussed in a future episode, then, well, that's the way to do it. If you want to reach out to us individually, you can. You can find me on Twitter at Jonathan Dunn. You can find me at Chaz underscore Hodges. M-I-N-T-Y-B-O-O-T-H Spells my Twitter handle, Minty Booth. And do join us next week for our two-thirds satanic number 66s. What?